Welcome, uh, Bishop James, all the way from Carlisle. We've had a lot of uh, toing and froing from Carlisle. Kirsty Burkett, Andrew Towner were both here yesterday and the day before uh, from Carlisle. It's great that you can join us. Thank you for driving all this way. Pleasure. Um, uh, Bishop James has been the Bishop of Carlisle for uh, 12 years or so. But you were in the diocese before that as Bishop of Penrith, the suffragan bishop. Yes. So you've really been up there in the far distant wastelands of the north for almost 20 years now. I have, yes. Where were you before that? Where were you um, uh, vicar and where did you train? Right. Uh, Well, if we go right back to the beginning. If you can remember that far back. Well, it was a. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very affirming right at the start. I was encouraged to be invited to young evangelicals. <laughs> um, yeah, I started off as an ordinand in uh, St. Albans. Uh, I was then in uh, Hitchin. Hitchin Ertz, yep. And uh, I went to Ridley Hall, trained there, and uh, then went to be a, a, a curate in Watford. Uh, in fact, there were two of us <coughs> there at Ridley at the time, and we're still very great friends. And we used to joke with each other. We said, well, St Albans, Hertfordshire, lovely area, Bedfordshire. I bet we'll end up in Watford and Luton. And sure enough, we ended up in Watford and Luton. So I was a curate for uh, three and a half years in Watford. Huge parish, 28,000 people um, four funerals a week. It was a very good training indeed. And it was quite a high church, so not quite um, my background, but I learnt a lot from that. And then uh, we went on from there to Cambridge, um, well, back to Cambridge, actually. Uh, and I was on the staff at Ridley, um, and I was also the minister of an ecumenical project just outside Cambridge called Bar Hill and so I was a Baptist Methodist United Reformed Church Anglican and Quaker minister Wow! Quakers don't have ministers but I was one of their elders (laughs) and uh, that was a fascinating time uh, 12 years there um, teaching at Ridley and and doing the stuff in the parish and we had the excitement of building a new church there because the old one became too small, which was a lovely uh, problem to have. And then we moved on to Chester, and I was um, uh, a residential canon at the cathedral. I should say that when I was ordained, I made a pact with God. And can I say this is the most disastrous thing anybody can ever do? <laughs> Never make a pact with God, because I said three things to God. First was, I will be ordained. I was very reluctant ordinand. I'll come to that later on. I said, uh, so long as I never get involved with a building project. We (laughs) built a new church in Bar Hill. I never work in a cathedral. I worked in the cathedral in Chester. Um, And I was also director of ordinands, and I was director of ministry, which meant directing, uh, looking after all the training of clergy and lay people. And then we went on up to Carlisle Diocese. The third part of my pact with God was that I would never work in the north of England. (laughs) (laughs) I know to those of you who are northerners, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. And having now lived for 20 years in Cumbria, I mean, we thought Chester was the far north. But (laughs) we soon came to realise that wasn't quite the case. So we went on to Cumbria. I was Bishop of Penrith for eight years and now 12, 13 in colour. What a wonderful and diverse career you've it's had. Been wonderful. What is the best thing about being a bishop? I think, uh, as with being a vicar, quite frankly, the people you come across and meet day by day. Uh, I've become totally convinced throughout my ministry that relationship is at the heart of everything we are and everything we do. Our relationship with God, obviously, and our relationship and relationships with each other. And it is the people who make the work. And if I asked you what is the worst thing about being a bishop, would the same answer apply? <laughs> the people. Actually, I think it probably yes. would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so thank you for but that. But you're very fortunate. You also have an ancient office which dates from the 15th century as Clerk 
of the closet, yes. um, which involves working with Her Majesty um, for the <laughs> princely sum of seven guineas, apparently, according to Wikipedia. Anyway, um, we were wondering yesterday if your seven guineas a year is adjusted for inflation back to 1437 or wherever it was that this, this office came about. Tell us about being clerk of the yes, closet and what it, it means. It actually goes back to the 14th century, oh, well, not that I remember that. <laughs> despite your earlier comments. But, uh, but um, it is the most extraordinary uh, title. Uh, it always causes a laugh. And uh, it, it's a rather unusual job, but terrific fun. Um, it used to be the person who kind of looked after the royal household. And if there was going to be a royal progress and the king or queen or whatever was going to go all around the country, I think the clerk of the closet was the person who had to make sure that all the food was there and everything was provided and they had transport and loo rolls and, you know, all the rest of it. And so um, gradually this developed and changed and it became a bishop who was the clerk of the closet. And the role now has three parts to it. One is I'm the sort of head of the so-called Royal Ecclesiastes Royal Ecclesiastical Household, it's a bit of a mouthful, but there are 35 royal chaplains around the country, and I sort of head up that and we meet up from time to time, and when one retires or uh, stops, um, I recommend who should go in their place. And they have to preach at the Chapel Royal once a year and go to garden parties and other such onerous tasks. Was it two twenty-seven thousand? Yes, it was part of our quiz yesterday. Right. Well, thank you. I had no idea, but I could well believe it. It is quite a good tea, there. I have to say. Um, You have to go around several times. The other parts of the job are, um, yeah, heading up the royal house. When there's a new diocesan bishop appointed, they have to pay homage to the queen. This is a wonderful experience. It really is. And it is, well, it, you, you, you kneel before her. She holds your hands in hers. And you say some extraordinary words, which do go back to about the 14th century, uh, basically saying that everybody else is rubbish. And this is the queen. And she is head of the church and head of the state and head of everything. And um, so I look after that together with the Lord Chancellor at the time. Now, I've only been doing this job for seven years uh, as clerk of the closet. During that time, there have been six Lord Chancellors, so they keep changing. On one occasion, do you mind a little anecdote? It's great, we love all the anecdotes. Right, okay. Um, On one occasion, some time ago, the Lord Chancellor failed to turn up. I don't know what was going on, some crisis in the country, I think. And so uh, this was a slight problem. So I went in to Her Majesty and said, I'm terribly sorry, Your Majesty, but the Lord Chancellor hasn't turned up. So greatly daring, and I don't know why I said it, I said, how, how would it be if I were to be Lord Chancellor just for a little while? <laughs> <laughs> and then I realised what I'd said. Oh, <laughs> Probably be taken off to the tower and executed. Uh, but she said, what a good idea. <laughs> So I became Lord Chancellor. And actually, this happened another four times. So I have now been Lord Chancellor five times. And the last time we had a homage, the poor new Lord Chancellor came in and we went in together to the Queen. She she said to him, I kid you not, it's very nice to see you, but I don't know what you're doing here. I've got a perfectly good Lord Chancellor already. So she does have a very good sense of humour. <laughs> and he was totally nonplussed and had not a clue what Excellent. she was talking about. So there's that job. Yeah. Any other and, great and, offices? Oh, in yes. States? Oh, and I have to. No, 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 not Prime Minister yet. Yes. But, um, but uh, I also have to vet any books that are dedicated to the Queen. So should you write a book and decide to dedicate it to the Queen, I will read it, vet it, and determine whether it's suitable or not. So that's at least a way of getting you to read something. Whether, whether it gets to her or not is a different Quite matter. Safe. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you with us. Thank, thank you for your sense of humour already. Can I pray for you <laughs> as you, you. Uh, come to thank teach you. us the Bible? Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
Bishop James for uh, the ministry that you've given to him over many years in the Church of England. Thank you for his faith in the Lord Jesus, for his hope in eternal life, and for his love for all the saints. Uh, We pray as he comes to teach us now, as he's taught the, the word on many occasions. Please give him clarity of communication, help him to think clearly and speak clearly to us. Give him boldness and courage to, de- to uh, declare it to us in a way that will build us up in our most holy faith, that will provoke and challenge us to love and good deeds and to being the ministers of Christ that you would have us be. So we pray that you would bless him and bless us as we listen to the message he has brought for us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've asked Owen uh, from Wycliffe Hall if he'd like to come and read for us. The reading is from 1 Peter chapter 5, if you'd like to turn to that. Yeah, it's 1 Peter chapter 5, first 11 verses. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who, will also, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you very much indeed, and um, thank you for having me here. It's really lovely to be with you all. Tomorrow, uh, assuming tomorrow is Friday, I slightly lost track of this week, I'll be delivering a so-called bishop's charge to five distinctive deacons who are being ordained in Carlisle Cathedral on Saturday. Now, I don't know whether you're very familiar with the distinctive diaconate. In the Church of England for many years, <clears throat> we've had a so-called transitional diaconate where people become deacons for a year and then go on and are priested, true of many of you here. Uh, but the distinctive diaconate, which I think goes right back to the early church, is something that is being recovered and restored And I'm very passionate about it, very excited about it, because, to my mind, the diaconate is a calling in its own right, just as uh, the presbyterate priesthood is a calling in its own right. So these are distinctive deacons. We've got about 200 of them around the country now, and it's uh, a movement that's growing and developing all the time. And so tomorrow, uh, they're preparing for their ordination and I will go along and give them a bishop's charge. Those of you who've experienced one of these on an ordination retreat will know that it's kind of football manager's pep talk to an enthusiastic but possibly anxious and struggling team, and not entirely dissimilar from that reading that Owen just read to us, those verses, wonderful verses, from chapter 5, of Peter's first letter. And I'm so grateful to be given those verses to look at for this session. Now, Peter was addressing the elders. He talks to the elders, and they were the counsellors, they were the administrators, they were the pastoral leaders in the early church in the days 
probably before the development of the threefold order of bishops, priests, and deacons that we read about in the pastoral epistles. Paul ordained elders in each church that he founded during his missionary journeys across Asia Minor, as we read through Acts. We find him going round, and everywhere he went, he would create, ordain these elders who would look after and lead the local church once it had been founded. They were the backbone of the church then. And Peter was very concerned to inform and to develop their leadership. In fact, in what he writes here, he goes so far as to identify himself as one of them. He emphasises his credentials as a witness of both Christ's suffering. We know some of the suffering of Christ that he witnessed, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, as we were hearing earlier on from Helen, in the um, courtyard of the high priest when he denied Jesus three times, and so on. A witness of Christ's suffering and also a witness of his glory, the glory that he saw at the transfiguration up on the top of the mountain, and the glory that he had experienced in the risen Christ himself. But he played down his status as an apostle. He was very modest in that respect. He wasn't saying, look, listen to me, because I'm sort of above and senior and um, superior to all of you. He said, I'm one of you. And he played down the fact that he was one of Jesus' own select inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, who several times in the Gospels are singled out to experience particular things, of which the Transfiguration, of course, was one. And as he wrote these verses, he may well have had in mind an early Christian hymn, a bit like Philippians 2, you remember, which is an early Christian hymn. Uh, we get from it the word um, kenosis, uh, self-emptying, Christ emptying himself, not claiming anything but becoming a servant. That was an early Christian hymn, probably. This, what he writes here, may well have been based on an early Christian hymn, or perhaps a couplet that was widely used in those early days in the preparation and the instruction of new converts. And the couplet went, we think, <laughs> nobody knows exactly, but they think it went, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That was the first part of the couplet. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And that was the second part. And so for people who are instructing new converts, they'd have had those two things particularly in mind. Humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And both those things feature very largely in these verses. So these words of Peter's take us right back to the very earliest Christian teaching in the days very soon after Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's no wonder, uh, to my mind, that one Peter has been chosen as the basic text for the forthcoming Lambeth Conference. Uh, Lambeth Conferences, you may know, are for all Anglican bishops from around the world, about 600 of them all together, and they <coughs> come together in Canterbury. I was at the last one in 2008. This one was due to happen in 2020. Covid intervened, so it's now going to happen next year, next summer. And 1 Peter is the basic text that we will all be studying. Now, of course, the culture then, 2,000 years ago, was rather different from ours in the 21st century West. <clears throat> but the, the context in which Peter was writing, context of very testing times for the church, has quite a lot of parallels. And Peter's message, which was very countercultural then, is equally countercultural now. And it applies directly, I think, to all leaders in today's church, with uh, in Europe, 
if not in other parts of the world where the church is growing very fast, uh, with, in Europe, declining congregations, financial worries, and an apathy bordering on scepticism about the Christian faith in our now post-postmodern environment. I was told the other day that's what we're now in. I have no idea what it means, but <laughs> that apparently is what we are now experiencing. So we've gone from everything being relative and there being no absolutes to everything being even more relative <laughs> and there are no absolutes, perhaps. Um, I was talking with the <clears throat> leader of one of our network youth churches in Cumbria recently. We had these network youth churches all around uh, the county. And I commented on the way in which the question that people are asking has changed from the days when I was a curate back in Watford, as you were hearing a moment ago, has changed from, is it true? And in those days, apologetics was what we were all into, and that was really important. Uh, to, does it work today? Oh, no, said the youth leader. You're way out of date. Well, <laughs> that, he was not the first person to say that to me and probably won't be the last. The question now, he said, is how does it make me feel? Everything nowadays is an experience. Say, I was walking uh, along the embankment in London the other day and saw on the side of a, one of those sh ships, you know, that's sort of anchored by the side of the embankment, a huge great thing saying, come in for the ultimate dining experience. And uh, everything now, when you go to a shop, a few shops that still exist and aren't online, the ultimate shopping experience. Everything's an experience. How does it make me feel? And on that front, we're in competition with absolutely everything, from pop festivals to computer games. So the principal task that Peter highlights for the elders couldn't be more important or more pertinent. And it is very simple and very direct, and it comes in verse 2 of chapter 5. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge. This relates very much to what Helen was talking about to us earlier on. Everything else, suggests Peter, follows on from that, and he would undoubtedly have had in mind Jesus' own charge to him, which Helen was talking about uh, earlier on this morning. Those three times by the lake. Feed my sheep, said Jesus. And Paul made exactly the same point in his powerful and moving farewell speech to the Ephesian elders that we read in Acts 20. So here is an important reminder of the essentially pastoral nature of the ministry into which all Christian leaders are called. I mentioned uh, when talking um, a moment ago um, that I was on the staff of Ridley Hall in Cambridge. And most of the time I taught ethics and something that was then called integrating theology. It was a very big thing at the time, and it was all about making connections between the various different disciplines that one is learning, um, biblical theology and pastoral theology and ethics and systematics and liturgy and all the rest of it. And that was tremendous fun. But for my first two years, my subject was pastoral theology. And I found that provided a foundation for everything else that I subsequently taught. And since then, and especially during my years as Director of Ministry in Chester Diocese, I've become increasingly convinced that pastoral care is right at the heart of everything that we're called to be and to do. And that's why one of the four key themes in our... We have a... a, a vision strategy in um, Cumbria, which is ecumenical, and it's called God for All. It's about uh, reaching out to everybody with the gospel. And we have four themes for that. 
One is um, speak boldly, it's about evangelism. One is tread gently, it's about the environment. One is follow daily, which is about discipleship. And the other one is care deeply, which is about our pastoral relationship with everybody around us. And as Anglicans, of course, that means care for everybody in the communities of which we are a part, not just the members of our congregations. That is the Anglican parochial principle, that we are there, those who are ordained for everyone, not just for those who come to our churches. The God we worship in Christ cares deeply for and about everyone he has made. Psalm 80, Isaiah 40, Psalm 23, and so on. And we are under shepherds, sharing in the good shepherd's work. John 10. I find that some clergy these days claim there isn't any time for pastoral ministry. Their role, they say, is sitting in front of a computer quite a lot of the time and directing the ministry of others. And of course, directing the ministry of others, enabling other people's ministry, is a vital part of everything we're called to be and to do. We were hearing about that a little too from Helen as she was reminding us that we can't do everything ourselves. We need to uh, enable other people to work uh, with us and alongside us. But it doesn't take long to realise that if you don't know and love your people, you can't discern their gifts. And if you can't discern their gifts, you can't equip the saints for mission and ministry. So I was driving up uh, yesterday down, <laughs> yesterday, I uh, heard a fascinating little interview with uh, a woman who's, I, I can't remember her name, but she's an amazing violinist. And she had the experience of being lent 12 violins made by Stradivarius. And she's made a CD playing different bits on each of the um, Stradivarius violins. And we heard a little bit of it, absolutely amazing stuff. But the interesting thing for me was that as she was talking about these violins, uh, the person who was interviewing said, was it very difficult? Because you just had to sort of pick these things up and, and play them. And she said, well, I did have a couple of days to get to know them. And she went on to say it's vital with any instrument to get to know it so that you can get the best from it. Same applies to us in our pastoral ministry. We have to get to know people. Relationship is at the heart of everything we're doing. Because if you don't, you can't engage properly. It goes back to uh, what we were hearing about gentleness to those and with those who are weak, whether it's ourselves or anybody else. You have to get to know people to know how best to be gentle with them. Tend the flock of God that is in your charge. That is our primary task, which of course includes teaching and preaching and applying the word, since without that we can't tend effectively. And in some detail, Peter tells us in these verses everything we need to know about our motivation for pastoral ministry, about the manner in which that ministry should be exercised, and about the measure with which success in ministry can be determined. Three M's. First of all, motivation. And I, must, I have to say, having been taught to do this when I was young, I, it, it becomes so ingrained, I can't not do it nowadays. <laughs> motivation, verses 2 and 3. Peter has three things to say about our motivation for ministry. He says we've got to be willing, we've got to be eager, and we've got to be transparent. Willing, well, that means being aware of our own unworthiness, like Moses, like Jeremiah, but ready to do what we can and be used in whatever way God chooses. I mentioned those things I'd said to God in my pact with him, really ridiculous. I had to learn that actually God decides, not me, when it comes to the way he wants to use us. 
When Peter refers to not being under compulsion, which is one translation of what he says here, I think he means not taking on a role of leadership grudgingly, or, as sometimes happens, with endless complaints about the terms and conditions of our service. There is a sense in which we're all compelled. St Paul felt compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, he said. And there's that lovely prayer in common worship, your love compels us to come in. And in fact, sometimes reluctant candidates for ordination or any other ministry in the church may need a bit of compelling encouragement, as I myself did, uh, since ordination didn't fit in at all with the plans that I had for my life. And uh, as a DDO, I have to say, for those who uh, may someday be asked to be a DDO, it is the best job in the Church of England, in my view. Absolutely amazing, a window into people's souls and what God is doing in people's lives. Um, as a DDA, I often had to exert similar pressure on other people um, in both directions. <laughs> and we had a sense of that in what Helen was saying earlier, sometimes to say, God really does seem to be calling you to this, despite your reluctance, and other times, despite your enthusiasm, uh, I really don't think so, <laughs> for a whole variety of reasons. Perhaps there's something else to which he's calling you. But it's no good if that compulsion breeds resentment. Rather, it should lead to a great sense of privilege. And I have to say that after more than 40 years now of ordained ministry, I still consider it to be the greatest privilege I could possibly ever imagine. Not my plan, not what I'd wanted to do, but every moment, including all the very difficult ones. And we had uh, earlier that life can be very difficult. Um, and then just the most monumental privilege. We need to be willing. Second, he says, we need to be eager, enthusiastic, in fact. Though I was amused to discover recently that in the 18th century, particularly through into the early 19th, enthusiasm, especially in clergy, was deemed to be a very horrid thing. <laughs> and there is a plaque in one church, I kid you not, which said the Reverend Canon, blah, 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 or whatever he was called, preached here for 40 years without enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> And that was reckoned to be a great compliment. <laughs> now, this is the opposite, says Peter, of entering ministry for sordid gain, uh, whether that gain is money or status or personal glorification. It has to be said that anyone being ordained in whatever we are now, 2021, for gain in any of those three areas, really needs his or her head examined. <laughs> Elders, then, usually controlled the church's finances, and they occasionally abused the trust that was placed in them. They filched some of the money for themselves, as still occasionally happens today with clergy or church treasurers, much to the delight of the tabloid press. So Peter is making the point that Christian ministry is costly. It involves putting other people's needs before our own, not ignoring our own, as, again, we were hearing from Helen, but putting other people's needs first, and not just working a grudging minimum of hours in order to get a paycheck at the end of the month. It's a way of life rather than simply a job. Um, again, we heard about the dangers of you know, burning ourselves out and killing ourselves, and that's really important. But it's about getting the right balance, and that's why stipendiary clergy continue to receive a stipend, enough to live on, that's what it's meant to be, rather than a salary. Nor is it about prestige and power, which is why we worry so much about aberrations, like 
the Sheffield nine o'clock service, which mm. is coming back into the news again now. I remember it happening very well indeed. In fact, in the church where I was, Bar Hill, at the time we had our own nine o'clock service, but I hope it was slightly different from the one in Sheffield that caused all the difficulties. And it's why in Milton's Paradise Lost, Satan prefers to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven. So he says we must be willing, we must be eager, and we must be transparent, not lording it over others, but being an example to the flock. So the oversight to which Peter refers is truly pastoral, not domineering. I always like the old adage that for the church to flourish, lay people must become more priestly, that is, the priesthood of, the, of all believers. Clergy must become more episcopal, that is, with true oversight. And bishops must become more apostolic, uh, with a sort of wider remit. And that's a process that is gradually taking place, I think, in the church. Our lay training course in Carlisle Diocese had the title called to serve, which of course applies to all of us. And Christian leadership demands of us that we work closely, collaboratively with each other, knowing that we always, always have so much still to learn. Uh, when I was first in Cumbria, Bishop of Penrith, I remember going to do an assembly at a school, one of our hundred and something church schools, and uh, I pulled up, and one of our, our oldest son was learning to drive at the time, so we had a, a learner plate on the car, and two children were sent out to greet me, as often happens, and uh, they took me in, and very polite and charming. And um, when we had the assembly, I gave the talk, and then there was quite time for questions, and... One of the children who led me in put up her hand and she said, there's an L plate on your car. Does that mean you're a learner, Bishop? <laughs> and I was able to say, yes, I am. I am a learner. I'm still, after 20 years, a learner, Bishop, and I'm still a learner Christian. And that's something we try to get across to everybody all the time. Uh, before ordination as um, a soldier, I trained at Sandhurst, and the motto, the motto Sandhurst is served to lead, and that's remained at the very core of all my subsequent ministries, serve to lead. So that's our motivation. We must be willing, eager, and transparent. The second thing he talks about is the manner in which our ministry should be exercised, and the various qualities Peter mentions here strike me as being rather like the little signs that you get in a hallmark. Uh, of the kind that you see on silver, real silver. The first is obedience. You who are younger, he says, must accept the authority of the elders. And that's part of the principle of mutual subordination, which, according to one commentator on this letter, is the very form of cruciform messianic authority. It's rather a complicated phrase, that, but I quite like it. The very form of cruciform messianic authority, mutual subordination, and the way in which God heals and orders social and political life. Now, of course, the authority to which Peter refers is the authority that is modelled on the loving service of the Good Shepherd. And that idea continues to this day in the Anglican oaths that people have to swear at their ordination, and then again every time they're licensed to a new role. I must have uh, heard those aids dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And they undertake not only to uh, serve Her Majesty the Queen and to um, uh, go along with um, everything that Scripture teaches us in its authority, but also to obey their bishop in all things lawful and honest. Obedience. Humility is the second. All of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. Verse 5. 
Now, Peter, that's a key value in Christian leaders. And it's certainly been my experience, sure yours as well, that the leaders I have most admired and respected have displayed humility above all else. There is no place in Christ's church for pompous prelates or arrogant vicars or conceited curates. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, says Peter, echoing the Magnificat. Well, in fact, of course, he gives grace to everyone, but only the humble are in a position to receive it. And that involves recognising our constant need, both of God and of one another. And I loved what Helen was saying, I may, about uh, us needing those who are weak, because they help us to discover our own identity, not least, and remember our interdependence as Christians. So together with simpler and bolder, humbler is one of the three words which encapsulates the whole Church of England's new vision. You may have seen it or come across it, humbler, simpler, bolder, it says. And it's interesting that humbler, humility, has also been picked up in a big way by business and management gurus who see humility as a necessary feature of successful leadership in the wider world as well. It's interesting how often the business world picks up on things that have been around in the Christian world for a very long time. And that word for clothe, clothe yourselves with humility, says Peter, is the word that was used then for a slave putting on an apron. Or Christ tying the towel round himself before washing his disciples' feet. may surprise you to hear this, but I've always been rather intrigued by the fashion industry. Now, not, I hasten to add, as a participant. <laughs> um, my wife were here. She, she says lots of lovely things about me. It's terribly kind, but the word cool has never, never, <laughs> never featured in her description of me to somebody else, and I don't think ever will. Um, but I find it absolutely fascinating. So I was interested to hear recently that the sale of men's suits has declined by 50% during this last year. I suppose because everybody's working from home. I don't know. And I recently found myself showing my wife a picture in a colour supplement of an outfit which, when I added up all the bits you know, that were listed down at the bottom, it added up to about £5,000 just for one Outfit. Now, I was not encouraging her to buy this. I was saying, isn't this just ridiculous? Well, in Christian leadership, we all get the same garment, which has nothing to do with low self-esteem, but everything to do with exalting Jesus rather than ourselves. There's a lovely... Uh, one of my hobbies is history of art. And there's a lovely altarpiece by Lucas Cranach in Wittenberg, course which we associate with Luther and it has Luther preaching on the right of it has the crowd listening on the left and in the middle is Christ crucified Luther is preaching Christ crucified to the people and all of them are looking up at Christ crucified humility means he must increase and I must decrease and then trust a third thing this is what Peter's getting at, I think, when he tells us to cast all our anxieties on God. And as we all know, whatever our particular ministry, there are an awful lot of anxieties in Christian ministry, one way or another. Why should we do that? Well, because we know that he loves us and cares for us. And that if we don't, those anxieties and worries will drag us down and they'll lead to severe emotional stress and possibly even the abandonment of our ministry, which happens all too frequently in today's church. I was talking to one of our clergy up in Cumbria recently. Uh, he's been <coughs> ordained for about 20 years, belongs to a cell group with friends from college days. And he pointed out that more than half of his cell group have now dropped out uh, through sheer exhaustion or demoralisation 
or loss of faith or whatever. Peter suggests this antidote. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And often his care and gentleness is mediated through other people and it's wonderful when that happens. I've known various times, certainly in my own life and ministry, when things have been really awful and it's one or two people who have been gentle with me who have made just all the difference. But it starts with casting our cares, our anxieties on God. And that's the very opposite of the kind of lack of trust that I was reading about recently in a newspaper article about anti-vaxxers who don't trust the government and don't trust what's going on. Or, uh, just very recently, in Afghanistan, the American commander of um, the uh, American um, mission uh, um, airbase who didn't trust the Afghans enough to tell them when they were pulling out. And by the time the Afghans discovered, it was too late because the Taliban had already come in. We must trust God and know that we can cast our cares on him. And discipline, the fourth thing, discipline yourselves, keep alert. Now for me, that points to the importance of routines and rhythms and habits in ministry, including our daily prayers, the daily office, which has sustained so many people through so many dry and arid times in their spiritual journey. And every time the alarm goes off on a cold, dark morning, I remember a mantra passed on by a wise old clergyman who said to me, every day, it's mind over mattress. Mind over mattress, he said. Uh, and that brings to mind that wonderful proverb, like as the door creaketh on a rusty hinge, so turneth the sluggard upon his bed. And as I turn over, I always remember that. Anyway, <laughs> courage is the fifth, which is necessary for resisting our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, these are great verses. They're familiar, of course, from their use in the beautiful night office of Conklin. And a stark reminder of the fact that none of us can avoid the spiritual battle that is so graphically described in Ephesians and which we must never forget or ignore. The devil is constantly attempting to undermine our ministry, not least through some of those people that he was talking about earlier on who are the worst thing about ministry as well as you know, the people who are the best. The devil is constantly attempting to draw us away from Jesus and bring us down. He tells us we are frauds and failures, imposter syndrome. He tempts us down disastrous paths. We all know about scandals involving well-known church leaders. He persuades us to dumb down the gospel and leave out any mention of sin or judgment to make it more palatable to a sceptical public. Had nice thing about uh, uh, somebody who was preaching. This was back in the 18th century when they were doing that kind of thing, even then. And uh, the vicar was preaching about the feeding of the 5,000, and he, he referred, uh, as he was introducing it, to the feeding of the 500. And the clerk, because in those days they had a parish clerk, leant over and he said, Vicar, Vicar, it is 5,000. To which the vicar replied, Shut up, you fool! They will scarcely believe 500. <laughs> the devil is constantly uh, trying to persuade us to dumb down the gospel. And we tend to demonize and fight against our visible human enemies, like the National Secular Society, who have been quite difficult. I, one of my roles is uh, being sort of lead bishop for health and social care, and that involves... Uh, having some responsibility for hospital chaplains. And the National Secular Society and the humanists have been very, very difficult over some of these things. And we tend to sort of go into battle with them. But in fact, they're just being used by our real enemy, the devil. And the good news is that even the devil is no match for our God who has already conquered him and cast him down. 
So the message for us is very clear. We must persevere. Persevere, I think, is one of the most important words in Christian ministry. Patiently resisting the devil's wiles, steadfast in our faith, which can be purified and strengthened rather than destroyed by all the testings that we endure. And then finally, perspective, which involves looking outwards at the worldwide church and the whole communion of saints. I think that's a really important idea, the communion of saints, living and departed, knowing that, and this is in verse 9 of chapter 5, our brothers and sisters are undergoing the same kinds of suffering and often much, much worse. Today, people are being seriously persecuted, put to death because of their faith in Christ. And that's where Diocesan links, we have three of them up where I am, prayer cycles, reports from charities and so on, can make such a difference and inform our praying and put our own local difficulties into the perspective that they need. And then the measure by which success in this ministry can be determined. It comes in verses 4 and 10. It's quite simply the unfading crown of glory, our salvation, which rewards faithful perseverance and is a pure gift of grace. We don't earn it, but we will have to give an account of our stewardship of the gifts and opportunities God has given us at Christ's second coming, which is when the fullness of his glory will be revealed. Our trials are transitory, but the glory we receive from Christ is eternal. And as Peter observes, it involves God, the God of all grace, completing what he's begun, that is our healing, the word is used for the mending of nets, establishing us, protecting us from the evil one, strengthening us, equipping us for service, that is, and placing us on a firm foundation, which is the rock, the cornerstone, as Peter puts it, which is Christ. So this charge of Peter's really is all about living in mercy and grace, the title of this conference. And our care for the flock, our primary task, is directly proportional to our love and care for our Good Shepherd, and above all, his love and care for us. Do you love me? Christ asked Peter, as we were reminded earlier. And when he said, yes, I do, Jesus replied, feed my sheep. And that's why I think this great passage has been a source of such great hope to Christian leaders through the centuries, Assuring them, as it assures us, that we are called by God's grace to God's glory. Both are very firmly there in these verses. We're called by God's grace to God's glory. In the sure knowledge that, as we know from 1 Thessalonians, and I think Peter, above all, would have echoed this, uh, the one who has called us is faithful and he will do it. Thank you. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we do thank you for your calling to each one of us, for your grace to us, and for the particular gifts that you've granted, the particular opportunities that you've provided, the particular people you have given for us to care for and be cared for by. We thank you for everything that has already taken place in our lives and for all that lies ahead. And we thank you especially for the sure knowledge that as we cast our cares on you and resist the devil firm in the faith, we shall come to know the unfading crown of glory that is our salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And we pray for strength this day and every day to tend the flock that is in our charge. 
to do that in your strength, not in our own, and to know through it all the grace that lies at the heart of the gospel you have given us to proclaim and teach. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop James. Don't go away. We have a few minutes for questions. If anyone has a question, I've got one. Uh, and I'll take Chairman's prerogative to ask first. Uh, the passage, Peter talks about uh, younger uh, people submitting to the elders. You mentioned the oath of canonical obedience. <laughs> yeah. um, and we've talked about obedience and submission um, throughout the conference. Uh, we had yep. uh, Titus uh, 3 verses 1 and 2 this morning. And I did the whole of Titus 3 on the first day. So can you give us any advice to those younger or even older who might struggle to pay due and canonical obedience and all things lawful and honest to their bishops when their bishops aren't perhaps as evangelical as some of the best right and we can turn the tape off if you'd like us to um. no, that's a, it's a very interesting one indeed um, well I think in some ways it's the same question as how can we work with, how can I work with some of my colleagues when they have very different views from my own on certain topics? Yes. Um, and I think I try to answer that by thinking, well, what is it that we have in common that actually unites us as members of the body in Christ, of, of Christ? And those are the, the, the fundamentals of um, belief in the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension uh, of Christ and belief in his second coming. Now, if people believe in that and people are believing in the Holy Trinity and can say Jesus is Lord, uh, their interpretations of parts of scripture may differ from my own, but I believe there's enough foundation there for us to work uh, harmoniously together um, proclaiming that gospel of Christ and um, it's very tricky because it raises all sorts of questions as we know about the authority of scripture and so on and so on but if those fundamentals are there that to me is the foundation on which both obedience in terms of canonical obedience and uh, working together is based and actually we have that as a very serious question at the moment in Cumbria, because we are an ecumenical uh, gathering, we work closely with Methodist United Reformed Salvation Army and many others. And recent decisions that have been made, for instance, by Methodist United mm. Reformed, make that quite difficult, especially for some of uh, our uh, brethren. And mm. we're trying to work that one through. So it, th this is not a, meant to be a glib answer. It's a live answer. But it's, it's, a live it's an important one. Yeah. Okay, thank you for answering mine first. Any other questions or comments or follow-ups or anything you want to, to add? This is your chance to, to, to ask questions of a real-life bishop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One over here, Ed, from there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Out of interest, uh, how, how much of a role do you have in appointments to um, your cathedral and sort of the residential council and so on um, versus just leaving it up to the dean? And um, how do you go about finding good candidates to fill those sorts of quite unusual clerical posts. Oh, right. Well, that's an interesting one. Yeah. Left field. Um, well, I have quite a say. Uh, in terms of appointing deans, there is a sort of process in the Church of England, um, but the, the Darson Bishop does have a say, even though not a huge role to play. In terms of residential canons, quite a considerable role, actually. And how do we set about attracting people? There are the usual advertisements and that kind of stuff for these posts. People sometimes don't consider them because they think, rather as I used to think, who wants, what, you know, cathedral is rather an abstruse, peculiar sort of ministry and I'd rather be in a parish. But um, actually there are all sorts of opportunities for people working in cathedrals. And although I was quite glad... I have to admit, and I was in a cathedral, that it was only quite a small part of my role. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that small part. Had it been my total role, 
I would probably have gone completely mad, <laughs> even madder than I am at the moment. But that's just me. And there are those who, who really love it and flourish in it and are very good at it. Not sure that answers your question. Perhaps we need a seminar on, uh, <laughs> on such ministries in future, uh, Jake. That would be good. Good question. Thank you. Any other questions, comments on anything? Well, within reason. <laughs> Life, the universe, yeah. Taylor. Firstly, Bishop, it's just great to have a bishop just expounding the word of God and flowing oh, over so that does my heart good, thank you. Um, my question was about um, shepherd the flock of God yeah. in your charge, uh, alongside the Anglican parochial thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Looking after everybody and their dog. Yeah. You had 28,000. Was it Watford? Um, yeah. I mean, some, some parishes, and they're getting bigger yep. as they're bolting things together. Yep. Um, I always found that really hard, particularly in a bigger parish. Just, yeah. you know, looking after three people and that dog is enough for me. Yep. How, how do you balance that? Yeah. And how do you... What is the difference between the two ministries, the uh, within yeah. and without? That's a really good question. Thank you very much. It's a very important question because, as you say, the job is getting more and more difficult in that respect. When it was one... I mean, we have 350-something church, Anglican churches in Cumbria, and it wasn't so very long ago that each of those churches had its own vicar living in the vicarage. Some of the communities are only about you know, a couple of hundred people, and so the vicar knew everybody. It was quite easy to care for everybody. Now, as we all know, it's five, six, seven churches over, spread over a wide area. A lot of people who you don't often see uh, even around in the streets. And I think part of the answer is the focus, first and foremost, has to be on, for, for those who are clergy, on your own congregation and um, particularly those who are in roles of leadership and ministry within it. And it's crucial that those should be properly equipped and taught and all the rest of it. But stretching out from there, having a pastoral team, ideally building a pastoral team, having the kind of people Helen's talking about earlier on who you've trained up and are enabling to go out and meet the needs of others is not only something that I think we are called to do, caring for uh, other people in the community, but also something which is really important from an evangelistic point of view, because it's often through those sort of contacts and relationships that people um, uh, begin to discover what the Christian faith is all about and see it being put into practice. And so I think collaborative ministry is probably the answer to that and that's not always easy there are times when i think we are called to engage with people outside the congregation and things like funerals actually are a good example of that and weddings which i consider still to be huge pastoral opportunities and evangelistic opportunities and we've got people coming to us we can make the most of it Mm. Amen. Thank you. Uh, time for one more, if it's a brief question. Michael. Yeah, so it's very easy to buy into certain negative narratives about the Church of England. What most encourages you about the Church of England at the minute? Good one. Very interesting question. I think probably, actually, the number of younger people who are being called into ministry of various kinds not only ordained, but actually uh, as youth workers, as community workers, um, in all sorts of different categories. And uh, I look at some of the churches that are growing up, well, it's particularly true in London, but actually it's true in other parts of the country as well, and see some places where the gospel is really taking root and Coming, and things are coming alive. And I think, well, the church has always gone up and, you know, it's always had ups and downs through history. God is in charge. And I believe that what the Church of England stands for is 
very biblical and um, is something which uh, we can and must fight for. And despite all the knocking that goes on, I think it's in God's hands. And even if we have to decline further in order then to grow, so be it. But um, I think there are signs of green shoots around the place and the fact that people are praying. So, for instance, when I first arrived in Cumbria, as I was going around to various churches, no less than three people said to me quite independently, they didn't know each other and they were at different parts of the county, that they had had visions of the whole county surrounded by flames of fire, fire of renewal, the Holy Spirit. And they've been praying for renewal and revival for, um, well, in one case, 40 years. Now, uh, I just pray that I'll still be alive to see that happening, but I believe firmly it will. And actually, I think we will see something remarkable happening, but it'll be God's doing rather than ours. Our part in it, in, well, starts with repentance, actually, and then goes on from there. Wonderful. What a great way to finish. Thank you. <laughs> Let's say thank you to the bishop for coming all this time. Again, thank you. It really is an honour for us to, to have a bishop come to visit us, especially from so far away. Um, and it is an honour for you to, to, to have you address us. Uh, and we really appreciate the time and the effort you've put into preparing your charge to Jake today.